0: Hello and welcome to the Granter Fortnightly podcast. I'm Ted Hodgkinson, the online editor, and this week I'm delighted to bring you a recording of the London launch of Granter 117, Horror, held at Foyle's Bookshop. Celebrated writers and contributors Will Self and Mark Doty began the evening by reading from their respective pieces from Horror, and then discussed them with Sigrid Rousing, Granter's publisher. The recording also features the questions and responses of the Foyle's audience,
1: which followed. Sometime over the winter of 2010 to 11, I began to be gorged with blood, or rather, my blood itself began to be gorged with red blood cells with hemoglobin. I didn't pay it much attention, mostly because I didn't realize it was happening the only perceptible symptoms being a certain livid tinge to my face and to my hands, which, I joked to family and friends, had started to resemble those pink marigold washing-up gloves. When I took my gorged hands out of my jeans' pockets, the tight denim hems left equally vivid bands smeared across their backs. These, I facetiously observed, with the colour of those yellow marigold washing-up gloves. I had no intention of doing anything about my pink and yellow striped hands. This is not, I stress, because I'm especially neglectful of my health. At times, I converge on hypochondria, but rather because they didn't strike me as obviously cancerous. I was on the lookout for the crab, but then I always am. It scuttled away my father and mother, the latter at sixty-five, an age she would have described herself also facetiously as getting younger. And during the preceding year it had been nipping at my forty-seven-year-old wife, trying to drag her down the sable strand and into the salt-chill waters that lap against life. She had been diagnosed with breast cancer in June of 2010, had a mastectomy in August, followed by a gruelling autumn, then winter of chemotherapy, and a silent spring of radiation. My wife bore her illness in a manner that demanded nothing but admiration. As we walked down the grotty staircase of Guy's hospital tower from the consultation where she'd been informed of how radical her surgery would need to be, she turned to me and said, I'm so lucky. If it was 25 years ago or I was somewhere else in the world, I'd have just received a death sentence. I imagined that if they cut out her heart instead of cutting off her breast they would have found devoid of self-pity written on it. I was less sanguine, metaphorically speaking. I felt distracted and doomy. I was a dilatory carer, and at times seemingly willfully inept. I could just about manage the basics, the feeding and dressing of our two younger children and the forcing upon her of increasingly unwanted cups of tea. It didn't help that we seemed to be at the epicentre of a cancer cluster. One friend was dying of leukaemia in the Hammersmith Hospital. Another was in the process of being diagnosed. A third had had half of his throat and jaw chopped out. Cancer? I hear you ask. Yes, of course, it was fucking cancer. What else would it be? I fully expected cancer myself. To paraphrase the late and greatly pathetic Rue Willie Donaldson, you cannot live as I have and not end up with cancer. There was the genetic factor to begin with, and then there's been the toxic landscape of carcinogens the yards of liquor, the sooty furlongs left behind by chased heroin, the miles driven and limped for over a decade to score crack, which then scoured its way into my lungs, the prosaically giant haystacks of Virginia tobacco hardly bear mentioning, being in contrast merely bucolic. No, I was on the lookout for the crab. Not a pair of lobster's claws. It was my wife who eventually sent me across the road to the GP. A shrewdly downbeat practitioner who in the past had declined to check my cholesterol levels. No need. You've cut your smoking right back. You're thin and fit and your blood pressure's low. Or send me for a prostate cancer biopsy. Too many false negatives. So there's hardly any point but now took one look at the human intercrustation transmogrification and sent me straight down to St Thomas's for a blood test. The results came within a couple of days, and when I saw him in person, he confirmed what he'd told me over the phone. Your hemoglobin is right up, and your white blood cell count is also elevated. I can't be certain, but I think there's a strong possibility it's I preempted him. Polycythemia vera. Aha, he said. Been Googling, have you? <laughs> I conceded that I had. Well, he continued, the wiki entries are pretty thoroughly vetted. If you stick to that, you're on safe ground. I inwardly congratulated myself for having done just that. But still, Polycythemia vera, what was that? a disease that sounded like a Greek goddess spliced with an East End pub landlady, a a disease that resulted from a single gene mutating and instructing your bone marrow to indulge in a mindless overproduction of red blood cells, a disease that was rare, chronic, incurable, and while no one yet understood the exact reasons for the mutagenesis disproportionately present among Ashkenazi Jews. I liked that. (laughs) In my transgenerationally facetious way, my mother had passed a generous dose of Jewish anti-Semitism down to me, and along with it, this Jewish disease had been bred in the bone. When my wife was having her operation, The windows of her surgical ward at St Thomas's looked out over the imperious clutter of central London, jumbled in the bends of the Thames, its giant ferris wheel and hypertrophied concrete bunker of a theatre, its recently whitened kingly sepulchre and its admiral-tipped bodkin. When my friend was having half his tongue and throat chopped out at University College Hospital, I went to visit him and found he had a still more spectacular view, south-facing from the Euston Road, the grid pattern of Bloomsbury and Marylebone seeming into the hugger-mugger from which Spears Senate House and Centre Point. Further off sprouted the thicket of the city, while the North Downs smeared greenly along the horizon. It occurred to me then that, for a Londoner, serious illness often afforded this curious discombobulation as one became a tourist in one's own city, resident for a week or two in a subsidised hostel, conveniently located for all the visitor attractions. And so, as I rose up from the bowels of London Bridge tube station, en route to my first hospital appointment, I toyed with the idea of turning left and heading for the London dungeon instead of right to the guy's haematology day unit. I'd never bothered to visit the dungeon before, but its cheesy tableau of caged, flayed, and beheaded dummy felons spattered with ersatz gore, would probably be a nice distraction from the far more veridical guignol that awaited me. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. We're going to go straight into Mark's reading now.
2: My thanks to everyone at Granta for their support and they are um, enabling me through the themes of these issues to uh, say things that I would otherwise be reluctant to say in print and that's been most helpful. Uh, this is a, a much, much pared down uh, version of an essay which um, I think will contextualize itself Only a sentence casually placed as a footnote in the back of Justin Kaplan's thick 2003 biography of Walt Whitman. But it goes off like a little explosion. Bram Stoker based the character of Dracula on Walt Whitman. Come again? The quintessential poet of affirmation, singer of himself, celebrant of human vitality. What has he to do with the parasitical phantom, the children of the night? The poet of Song of Myself proclaims his solar confidence. He outgallops stallions, is plumb in the uprights, and braced in the beams, and even the smell of his own sweat famously delights him with an aroma finer than prayer. He seems himself a kind of sun, radiant, generous, aglow with an inner heat composed of equal parts lust, good health, and fellow feeling. How could the embodiment of lunar power emerge from him? What thrilled Whitman was vitality, and Bram Stoker, who'd been championing the older man's poems since his days at Trinity College, where he read them with my door locked late at night, must have sensed this. He first found the expurgated edition that William Michael Rossetti had published in England, then ordered an American edition of Leaves of Grass, and proceeded to write Whitman a fan letter. Thank you for all the love and sympathy you have given me, in common with my kind, Stoker wrote. The letter, a longish late adolescent gush which practically falls over itself with hesitation, throat clearing, and a tumult of feeling, was charged enough for its author that he didn't manage to get it into the post for four years, which must place it right up there in the history of delayed correspondence. Whitman wrote an immediate reply. He was charmed by the letter and the note Stoker sent with it. Who wouldn't be? By the description of himself, Stoker included. My friends call me Bram. I live at 43 Harcourt Street, Dublin. I am a clerk in the service of the crown on a small salary. I am 24 years old, have been champion at our athletic sports, Trinity College, Dublin, and have won about a dozen cups. I have also been president of the College Philosophical Society and an art and theatrical critic of a daily paper. I am six feet two inches high and 12 stone weight naked and used to be 41 or 42 inches around the chest. I am ugly but strong and determined and have a large bump over my eyebrows. I have a heavy jaw and a big mouth and thick lips, sensitive nostrils, a snub nose and straight hair. I am equal in temper and cool in disposition and have a large amount of self-control and am naturally secretive to the world. Now I have told you all I know about myself. <laughs> I read that yesterday to an a, a interviewer on Irish radio and she said, if I saw that on match.com, I would respond, <laughs> which is much how Walt Whitman felt. The novelist-to-be visited his hero, the poet, three times in the 1880s when the theatrical company Stoker managed toured America. And though their conversations were summarized by Whitman's devoted amanuensis, who would collect his observations in the nine volumes of Walt Whitman in Camden, I still find myself wondering what they talked about. Every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. I've always read Whitman's startling claim at the beginning of his greatest poem as a generous statement. But if Stoker indeed based his legend of appetite on the poet, then he turns this notion inside out. Every atom belonging to you is mine. Your sweat, your tears, your lymphatic fluids, your semen, if you're a man, your blood. I own you. This sentence in Kaplan's footnote shocks not because it's a stretch, but because despite the warmth we associate with Whitman, it feels right somehow. I recognize him, the craving count, the barely-bodied ancient thirst, inside the part of me that shares Whitman's love for the vital ember, the glowing health, the muscle and vigor of men. I wish I didn't. Every atom belonging to you, your semen, your blood. There he is in the mirror, shadow of the open-collared, open, slouch, open collared, slouch-headed cabarado. Insatiable is unsustainable. I'm in the parking lot at the natural food store when the bumper sticker on the Toyota beside me stops me in my tracks. It's about consumption and the environment. We can't go on using more and more resources, producing and shopping and throwing things away. I get that. But what shakes me is that I'm reading the slogan in another, not entirely unrelated way. Because I have been insatiable. I've forgotten, actually, what it might feel like to be satiated. Or perhaps, it hurts to admit this, even to be satisfied. Satisfaction is something I stopped seeking in sex, more or less, at least in a physical sense. What I wanted in my long careening tour through the bodies of countless men, through bathhouse and sex club and online hookups and meth, was something difficult to grasp. The rhetoric of addiction would describe it as an urge to ignore my own sense of lack, seeking and seeking to disguise or ignore or fill an emptiness within Something like the way Carl Jung is supposed to have said to Bill W., you were reaching for spirit, you just reached for the wrong kind. And indeed, that's one way to view a deep, compelling attraction to bodies, a longing to touch and touch and enter. The ex-con in construction boots and a towel, smoking a hash pipe, flicking tiny coals and bits of ash from the down of his belly outdoors by the pool, the water lights rippling over his torso... The stoned, angelic young man, muscled and pale, opening his body to me and coaxing my fist inside him. The oil worker who came in from days on the big oil rigs in the Gulf with his ears still ringing and his reddened skin, hungry for touch. The beautiful, lean, muscled doctor, the first man I snorted crystal with, who whispered in my ear for hours about how he wanted me to infect him, covertly, without him knowing it, leaking virus into his bloodstream. Men who wept about their fathers, their brothers, about bullies and gangs, about teachers and counselors and coaches, but fathers most of all. Those fountainheads of male woundings because they sensed I was someone in whose presence they could set down their guard, or just someone willing to listen. A beautiful, compact, hairy young bear from New Jersey, 40-something, but nonetheless very young anyway, who shook in my arms wearing just a clean white jockstrap because no one had ever genuinely loved him. I didn't judge. It was as if that were part of my purpose. I wanted to know the men who moved through my nights like passing comets. Wanted them to feel the pleasure of being known. When you have a lot of sex, sex becomes increasingly less narrative. There's less of a story of connection and its development, and more a series of images like the list I've just written, a photo album of sorts, in which still pictures stand for a succession of bodies in time, these remembered snapshots containing rooms of eros a man who lay back in a sling in his darkened third-floor apartment, his shining red motorcycle spotlit beside him, a long green hallway in an East Village apartment down which one had to move laterally since there wasn't much room to walk straight ahead, and at the end of it, a room entirely lined with, of all things, mid-century American pottery, arrayed on walls the sun had never touched. A list. Is that what desire makes, finally? Finally. As in so many of Whitman's poems where line after line spins out a careening catalog of what the poet sees or is or wishes to be, ask the collector, the curator, the person who touches and touches what he desires. He is making on paper or in his head or in his dream life a list. Addiction is one way to think about it, but there's also what seems to have been Whitman's view. A mission, if you will, to seek out one's camarados, to join in a community bound together by desire and affection, to find the common good in our common skin. There are lists of men in Whitman's papers, with brief notations, an age, a bit of detail, a note about how they met, not much. A collector's catalog, a record of the body's travels. How else will I know the world, if not by touching as much of it as possible, finding in the bodies of my lovers and fellows my coordinates? a theory of the popularity of vampire books and movies. We understand that in a consumer culture, we are feasting on whatever brings us a feeling of life, that we hunger to be fed in this way, that our freedom to act upon our desires places us in the position of hungry consumers seeking the next pleasure. by anything, and what you've brought into your life has made the world a little less vital someplace else. And we consume our lovers, of course, as we know the world by mouth. By mouth means to use our lips and tongues to touch, but also to speak, to name, to consume, as in tasting, or as in absorbing, taking on their characteristics or vital energy. Great poets are, by definition, undead. The voice is preserved in the warm saline of ink and of memory. It cannot fade. Time cannot take away a word of it. The personality as it breathes through the preserved voice back into the world is unmistakable. Walt Whitman sounds like no one else, and of all poets, he seems to have understood in the most uncanny of ways that his audience did not yet exist. Of the many poems that demonstrate Whitman's daring, Trickle Drops is in its way the strangest. Here it is. Oh, drops of me, trickle down, slow drops. Candid, from me falling, drip, bleeding drops, From wounds made to free you, Once you were prisoned, from my face, from my forehead and lips, from my breast, from within where I was concealed. Press forth, red drops, confession drops. stain in every page, stay in every song I sing, every word I say, bloody drops. Let them know your scarlet heat, let them glisten. Saturate them with yourself, all ashamed and wet. Glow upon all I have written or shall write, bleeding drops. Let it all be seen in your light, blushing drops. With his characteristic canny strangeness, Whitman has done what no one else would have thought to do. He's made the reader the vampire, feasting on the poems, which here expose in their fierce confessional heat the poet's naked life. You, Whitman's ubiquitous second person, is nearly everywhere in his work, the reader he wishes to seduce and to claim. But here he speaks for once to his own blood. He feeds it to us. I feel, as indeed he must have wanted his readers to feel, that he feeds it to me. How could I refuse him?
0: Thank you very much for that. Um, I want to go back to... um, Will's essay and talk about illness as metaphor Um, it didn't come up in the reading but ultimately in this essay you follow Susan Sontag in rejecting the idea of illness as metaphor Um, and at the same time of course you're very keenly aware of the ironic nature of your illness having been a drug addict and having been addicted even to needles and injecting you are now having to have a treatment which involves drawing blood from your body. Why why is it so important to reject the idea of illness as metaphor?
1: That's a good question. Um, yes, I mean, I wasn't... I was really concerned with... I mean, what was... The treatment for the illness I have is what's called a venous section. It's therapeutic bleeding, in essence. I remember shortly after I was diagnosed hearing... I think it was Melvin Bragg on the radio and, and they were t- doing a, a program on um, Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy and, and you know, being bled came up and Bragg laughed and said, oh, that's so barbaric and so kind of, And actually, you know, it's kind of keeping me alive and lots of people get therapeutically bled and um, but it's not something that's talked about a great deal. I mean, I don't know exactly what the correct forum for it is. Every single I put it in the essay, every single person I said I had to be therapeutically bled to said, "What are they going to use, leeches?" Every fucking person. <laughs> and I just I thought it was absolutely bizarre. You know what, what, You know, it's one of those kind of collective delusions that you're being funny. Um <laughs> Because they got to take out, uh, you know, a pint at a time, and you 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 just don't find leeches that big kicking around the place. Um, but I was, you know, as as Sigrid has said, you know, I can having been a, an intravenous drug user for a decade. Um, I think you never really get over sticking needles in yourself without becoming phobic about needles. That's the way you deal with it. You, you reject it so completely. So when I realized that I had this condition where I would have to have needles stuck in me regularly for the rest of my life, it seemed like a payback for that. It seemed like, you know, this is it's come full circle, kid. Now we stick them in you. And that's because you stuck them in you for no good reason. Now we're going to stick them in you till you die. Uh, so that kind of... That got me going on the whole kind of you know I mean you know the whole notion that, that of of transliterating physiological processes to a moral level is a process of metaphorization and I think what Sontag masterfully resists in that essay uh, you know and and she you know revamped it in response particularly to AIDS HIV. Uh, was that. It was written initially about cancer. And I think it's uh, everybody's tendency is to go into that kind of magical thinking with illness uh, and to look for the the kind of, you know, the psychological and moral blemish that has brought this on one. And the realm of the metaphoric when you're ill to exist in the realm of metaphor is vile. It's, it's just a horrible, horrible neurotic dangerous place to be uh, and you know actually i i mean it, it seems strange um what but you know the just reading sontag's essay again was enormously helpful they should actually prescribe it to people uh.
0: mm. yeah it's, it's also isn't it that we think of modern medicine as an alleviation of suffering but yet, you know, there is so much suffering in modern medicine, and not least for you, and you describe that very well, you know the horrors of having the blood taken it's from not that you.
1: bad, really, it's mostly yeah. kind of Jewish fetching actually <laughs> i mean what it, the reason it was bad was because of the needle phobia, yeah you know, as I think I say in the piece, I mean what was very kind of humbling was you go into the hematology unit. And there's, like, loads of people sitting around there having all sorts of shit shoved into them through thick Mm -hmm. cannulas and just sort of sitting there with their fucking blackberries out, you know, kind of... I mean, you know, I think it, it hit me bad because of this, you know, needle addiction that I'd had. I mean, I'm not saying they think it's a breeze. You know, many of them have got illnesses that are far worse with a far more reduced life expectancy than I have. So, you know, and I was, you know taken by their their uh their heroism i'm not you know i I don't you know to pick up on what you're saying i mean the kind of i've written a lot about illness over the years and I, i wrote a novel called how the dead live which was really in response to the way we metaphorize death in in our culture you know and I think something like the statistic is something like 90% of health expenditure in the average person's life is during the last six weeks of that life. You know, and it always strikes me as strange. I mean, it's not familiar to Mark because he doesn't come yet from a society with socialized medicine. But what that effectively means is that in a society like ours, where the issue of national health spending is a key political platform issue what politicians are actually arguing about is how painless they're going to make your death you know whenever they stand up try performing this substitution whenever a health spokesman stands up from one of the major parties and saying says we will re ring fence spending on the national health what he or she is really saying is i'm going to shoot you up with loads of smack and it won't hurt a bit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: mark of course this is familiar territory for you as well, illness as metaphor. Your partner died of AIDS. You will be very familiar with the whole issue of metaphor, illness, uh, and also in this particular essay, the vampire metaphor, gay sex.
2: As Will was speaking, I was in fact thinking about um, the radical difference between these essays, which have much common ground, but um, for the investigation of what sex means to us, um, I don't know any other way to proceed except through metaphor, which may be the consequence of being a poet, that that metaphor is is the means of knowing, so that it's um, odd for me to think about metaphor as the source of trouble, but in the case of negotiating with illness, it makes absolute sense to me that that that's a place where we want to fence off figurative speech, keep it out of our thinking um, so that what can happen... Well, you say that in the essay, that the only therapy is directness. The only possibility for feeling better is straightforwardness. Mm. Whereas when you're talking about sex, um, the straightforward does you very little good. You know, it it seems like the only way to get at it is through indirection.
1: Well, I think, uh, you know... Pornography on the whole is sex devoid of metaphor. It's just cunts and cocks. And, you know, yeah, I mean, there's some hills and valleys and, yeah. and you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I mean, maybe, not, maybe, not much. Maybe, you know. yeah. maybe in erotica. <laughs>
2: right. Um, it's a volcano now and then. Erotica. Erotica. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it seems
1: that what. I mean, it, it's going up. Let's follow you up that hole. Uh, you know, I think what's happened to. Uh, Writing about sex or, or dealing with sex in narrative, uh, and and why I found your writing about sex very beautiful actually, is that on the whole it has been leached of metaphor. You know what it, what is the kind of. You know the kind of you know uh, handy cam on on the masturbator that's then put on the world wide web, but but a, a, a grotesque literalism. You know what, what what's going on here? It's you hugely
2: know. difficult because you know there is there is the clinical possibility of naming of parts. There is euphemism. Uh, there is pornography, uh, and none of those things really seem to satisfyingly capture or evoke the nature of sexual experience. None, none of those things are as they might be stimulating in certain moments, but but they don't um, capture the texture of what desire feels like.
1: No, I think that's right. But and I think, that would seem to be the hardest challenge for the writer. But, you know, I'm not advocating that we... Aren't allowed to apply metaphor to illness in literature. That w- that would be a, a a rather extreme edict, you know, sort of Ayatollah's edict. I think what I was saying was that it's not useful to the ill person yes. to interpret. Uh, in fact, of course, it's essential for our understanding. But you know, by the same token, if you think of horror, which I think you you express very well, with one possible reading of the vampire obsession, though I think it's rich and layered in in many, many different meanings. And I tend to to view a lot of kind of vampirism zombies, a lot of these kind of very successful horror genres as an attempt by people who are fundamentally neurotic to mediate anxiety and to control anxiety. Uh, You know, it's easier to worry about an impossibility, one of the undead coming through your door, than it is to worry about the fact that you're going to die. You know, these are things, and it's easier to watch discorporation graphically enacted within a defined screen than to meditate on your own inevitable discorporation in that way. And it seems to me, I mean, you don't, see many people in the hematology department reading vampire (laughs) novels. (laughs) yeah
0: Yeah. so you you find comfort in looking at things find seeing things in themselves and the straightforwardness of you describe very beautifully the nurses in their filmy polythene aprons (laughs) the cuff on the arm the sensor on the finger
1: yeah, I mean, I think that you know, I think anybody and most of the people in this room would have experienced, if not serious illness, illness that felt serious to them, and you know, fancy word coming up, resuscipiens, you know, the the return to health, is always experienced as a kind of love of quiddity, a love of thisness, you know, that's that's what we we don't when we return to health, we don't think about. You know, metaphors, we think about very, very literal things, the sun on our faces, or, you know, and I I put it in those terms. You know, though addiction is actually a different, interesting. But William Burroughs said that, you know, when he came off heroin, he would be subjected to a kind of image hunger, Mm. that he would have this incredible and intense desire for imagery. And that's a different kind of
2: rescipience, I suppose. Getting well immediately makes one feel hugely grateful for the ordinary and getting sober is, is the opposite you know? is. Yeah.
0: I wanted to quote because I, I liked it so much a metaphor that is actually there in the text which is the sign uh, you write from the hospital the sign about, above a door read spiritual care but a steel shutter had been rolled over it and through a hole in this, I could see a combination lock.
1: Yes, I mean... Metaphor. Uh, <laughs> yeah, to be fair, I did see a rather ferrety looking Anglican priest going through the door, unlocking the door, marked spiritual care at some point over the three months and disappear behind it with a loud clang. But most of the time, spiritual care did remain very firmly locked and um you know at least it was there even (laughs) even if it was locked uh but you know i mean it's it's uh you know we're victims of our own success when it comes to medicine aren't we you know it does phenomenal things you know many people died as we know in in the aids hiv epidemic but you know with highly active retroviral drugs there is considerably enhanced life expectancy now I mean that's a kind of astonishing thing you know it's it's difficult for things that are immaterial to really shape up against that kind of technological mastery Uh, so it seemed to me that the kind of paltriness of spiritual care and the fact that it was shuttered off in that way uh you know yeah it is a kind of uh, a metaphor for 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 that do you think it was open before proteus inhibitors <laughs> it was probably a, yeah an aladdin's cave full of kind of rabbis and various other bearded weirdos
0: i want to talk now about uh desire and addiction when does desire become addiction i was very interested in your idea of the underlying taste for the wild mm-hmm. you talk about yourself you know having that a need to go on the back of a motorbike uh, a, a metaphor but also kind of real i think you know uh on the back of a motorbike every once in a while um and i was reminded when i read that of sean penn's film the book as well but more more the film actually into the wild mm-hmm. have you seen that mm-hmm. film Oh, it's, it, it's a wonderful film about a young man who uh, troubled finishes finish university and is obsessed with the idea, the American idea, of going into the wild. And he eventually dies in Alaska. He poisons himself and dies. Uh, and I was thinking about, you know, this this kind of wild sex thing. You know, is that is that a, a reaction to the suburbs? To, to domesticity to responsibilities, or is it about going into the wild, or is that in itself a meaningless metaphor?
2: Well, thank you Sigrid for that question. I'm being ironic. I I don't don't know what to do with it. I um, am not sure that I believe there is such a thing as addiction to to desire, addiction to sex, Uh, and part of the purpose of the essay is to complicate and argue with that notion. Perhaps what desire is is the response to a perennial sense of lack within the self uh, that must always project itself outward, and that's our nature. And, and therefore, uh, it's absurd to say that you're addicted to sex or addicted to desire. Perhaps what that addiction is is a continual uh, need to make contact and to know oneself in relationship to the bodies of others. Perhaps it's an expression of... Um, Actually, a form of, of, of love uh, for you know one's, one's fellow beings. Um, I have trouble with the notion of you know having having been through twelve step programs of of saying you know hello, I'm Mark and I'm an addict because as soon as I do that. Every other aspect of the self is cast into the background somewhere. And what we must deal with here in this group, in this room, is the self as addict as opposed to all those other parts of me. And I understand that it is sometimes necessary to do that in order to uh, move forward or to save one's, one's life, literally. Um, but I also think there's a great risk in it, in the... In the um, limitation of who we think we are and in the ways that we might wind up circumscribing or, or demonizing desire and, and one of the things I, I most want to do I guess and it's something that's possessed me as a writer for, for years is to find some relationship with desire that seems uh, tenable uh, to me uh, and, and as you can tell from the essay I've, I've just done a wonderful job But uh, uh, no, um, it's a continuing struggle, <laughs> of course it's a continuing struggle <laughs>
0: Will, you write in your essay about addiction as an insensate desire. Mm. Um, I mean, was, there a desi- was that a desire in and of itself? I'm trying to get at you know, what it is to be an addict. Is, is that something in and of itself, or is it symbolic of something else behind uh, the addiction? Did you need to go into the wild at that time?
1: No, I think it's pathology. I, I disagree with Mark. I I think addiction's a pathology. I think that's where we we part ways. I mean, I think it's an unusual pathology. I also think, I mean, Terry Eagleton in his book on evil, uh, you know, significantly another recovering alcoholics. <laughs> uh, shake a tree and they fall out. Um you know, in his book on evil, used addiction, I think, very powerfully and usefully as a paradigm for what evil is. Mm. So, you know, it's kind of interesting that Mark and I should so radically diverge at this point. Um, evil because addiction, in, in my mind, and by addiction I mean <laughs> full-blown mental obsession... And full-blown bodily compulsion is so obviously nega- has n- totally negating uh, of the individual, both the individual sufferer uh, and the individual, the individual who suffers, ability to sympathise with anybody else, mm. because they become like a puppet. and I certainly do think that sex addiction exists Um, I don't know what you call those you know daisy chains and kind of uh, you know scenes of kind of unbridled fucking I mean I dare say there was love there for some participants I you know I I don't dispute that but certainly some people will, will have been if not it, if it wasn't their primary addiction it was one aspect of of addiction it seems to me i but i think that mark writes very beautifully and i i think very justly about desire be you know the the, the viewpoint that there is no desire without division that's absolutely true but Mark, it's a matter of degree, man. <laughs> well, but, you know, um,
2: a matter of degree, I think, is often problematic for gay men, like, right? If you're, if you're used to desire being policed, and then it's easy for anything that seems like the policing, the restriction of desire, to be of a piece with the other things that you've been told not to do, right? Okay. So, how do you, this, this notion of, of finding balance or uh, negotiating between the endless desire to, to consume and to join with others and a sort of more reasonable position in relationship to that. It's one of the things that interests me in Whitman because he's, mm. uh, he's reaching out and out and out, t- uh, you know, taking in multitudes. And at some point, along comes a Bram Stoker who flips that over you know, and shows us the underside of that insatiability.
1: Mm. Well, I mean, to follow your thesis forward... I mean, reading between the lines of your essay, do you take Dracula, the novel, to be a metaphor for Stoker's own, absolutely mostly repressed homosexuality?
2: Absolutely, a kind of uh, a shadow. Is there self? a great
1: novel of the late nineteenth century <laughs> <laughs> that is not an extended metaphor for somebody's repressed <laughs> homosexuality? <laughs>
2: Well, you know, there's a moment in Dracula when, when uh, the Count grabs both Jonathan Harker's hands in mm-hmm. one of his hands. And he puts his other hand behind Jonathan Harker's head. And he pulls his, the man's head to his chest, which he claws open with his fingernails. And he pushes Jonathan's face into his chest and makes him suck his blood. And it's not very repressed. No, it's not It's just, there it is. So can, is it. Yeah.
0: I, I wanted to ask you about... Whether one of the keys to the desire addiction, uh, desire and or addiction that you you write about, is the culture of self-actualization, which mixes up somewhat uh, the want with with the need, so that the want eventually is kind of easily redefined as as a need. So you know, I I would like to go on the back of a motorbike too, but I can't quite say that I. something inside me would die if I didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, so for me, it's, it's a want, but it's not a need.
2: Well, you know, Whitman is, like his fellow transcendentalists, he, he's, he's urging Americans to, to follow their own lights, listen to the inner voice. And a and hundred years later, 150 years later, we, we don't really need much urging to, to do that. Um, some of myself becomes some of myself self-self. It, 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 there's a, a certain discomfort Uh, for me in acknowledging that at the same time there is a genuine faith on his part that his poems can produce among his audience a kind of camaraderie a genuine affection founded in the body for one another that can change what a culture is like that can build a democracy and I can't dismiss that of course he understood, you know, being a witness to civil war, being a nurse in, in devastating civil war hospitals, seeing people torn apart, tearing each other apart, that his vision was just that, was a vision, was not going to be an actuality that he would see. But nonetheless, that dream of a, a society founded upon mutual affection, it remains gorgeous. And to me, that still flavors my sense of what sexuality is—that um, kind of connection with others that comes about through touch and gaze and contact—is um, is something um, probably irreducibly beautiful about it. Despite you know, yes, it can certainly become anonymous and emptied out. It can become selfless. But it's a very delicate balancing point because we want to become selfless, don't we? Isn't that one of the things that we love about sex is disappearing, finding ourselves um, conjoined in the body of another, feeling limit and boundary dissolve? As as we desire that, I believe, as human beings, and yet the furthest extreme of dissolution is being dissolute. So, yeah.
0: You you touch in the essay uh, uh, on... Uh, Whitman's uh, possible sexual relationships with what people used to call here rough trade. You, know, it's mm-hmm. you, you don't yeah. talk very much about that, but there's a sense of you know, perhaps not a limitless brotherhood of you know, democracy, but rather that kind of sexual thing which is so anonymous between you know, the rough and the educated.
2: You know. Well, you know, he himself uh, uh, managed to finish third grade in yeah. uh, and, and Brooklyn Public Schools and became a printer's apprentice at the age of 11, so uh, the, the class disparity is, is not so large here. I mean, he works as a carpenter. He ran a bookstore for a while uh, and then found his way towards self-publishing the poem and, and proceeded to uh, relentlessly promote it uh, for the rest of his life. Um, he certainly took the greatest pleasure in the company of the roughs of working men. He loved uh, the riverboat captains, the stagecoach drivers in New York. He wanted to rub shoulders with those who were less self-conscious than he. And that seems to be, I mean, that's sort of like a continual homosexual trope, right? The, the, the artist who wants to be connected with somebody who's less self-aware, less self-questioning, you know, who's more present in the body.
0: So... Going back to the question of of want and need, if Dracula is about illicit desire and giving in to that illicit desire, what does that redefinition of want and need really mean? Um, So what I mean by that, if Dracula's desire is understood, potentially treated, would he too have ended up with a list, which is what you end up with in, in the
2: essay? Had there been a twelve-step group for 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your list, your
0: idea of the I'm list. I'm glad, and I'm a vampire. Actually, it's right? yeah. beyond twelve-step, yeah. uh, isn't it? It's not. I'm sorry. The, your idea of the list I find very interesting because it's actually you've by this station there say so you've rejected a twelve-step model. Yes, right. you've, re- you've rejected Lacan, and you're saying rather like Will was saying, you're saying you're ending up with what it is it's a list it's a it's a list almost of scenes you know it's a collection yeah
2: well let me stress that this is uh not an essay that um wishes to come to a conclusion yeah. but, but is an act of inquiry and it's part of a book that is uh still uh, i'm struggling with that it has to do with the relationship between whitman's poems and my own life uh, and this is sort of the central question there is the, the idea of the limits of pleasure and the limits of the body and what do we do with the problem of ongoing desire and our own insatiability which I think on some, I'm guessing that we all experience some degree of insatiability that we want, as my friend Marie Howe, a wonderful poet, says we want more and more and more of it whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that problem, which I, Doubt will be resolved in in my book. I hope will be at least, um, you know, further articulated. Um, And now I've lost track of your question.
0: So, I mean, going on a little bit, you know, we are constantly faced by the processes of cultural taming. I mean, whether it's, you know, treatment of one kind or another, you know, psychotherapy, 12-step, whatever. So... Are we in danger culturally of losing the idea of the wild, of not being able to go into the wild because the wild doesn't exist anymore?
2: Well, of course, except uh, then that's part of this, uh, this desire to... Um, one of the things that sex might offer us is a sense of escape, mm-hmm. of, of that uh, sort of uh, reaching out of the familiar, of moving into those territories that are not already mapped and circumscribed, at least for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that seems to me to be, um, well, perennially liberating, really.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I just find it so interesting that it seems to me that in the end, although both of these essays are autobiographical and they're not about conclusions, but nevertheless there's a sense in both of them that illness is illness. It's not about metaphors. Sex is sex. You can write about it, but not necessarily in metaphoric terms, because the metaphors ultimately are false or falsifiable. It is what it is. You know, do you you see the similarity between?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, that, you know, quite clearly the the thing about horror as a genre is that it's not what it is. You know, uh, the real horrors of contemporary life are never, ever dealt with within the genre of horror in any way, shape or form. And that's why it's paradoxically the most escapist of genres in a way you know there's there's more reality uh in science fiction and certainly in romance than there is in horror uh and i suppose that you know it just shows that that mark and i have that probably quite visceral reaction to the idea of responding to the notion of the genre itself or or what it is it's doing i mean in terms of you know, what you're talking about, Sigrid, about saying that we're being kind of therapeutized out of our wild side. Speak for yourself, madam. Um, also, I th- but I think there is, I- I- at any rate, there is a kind of, um, it's a very bourgeois, Western, affluent perception, certainly, but it does explain the kind of interesting and rather kinky fetishizations of War that, after all, wars—the wars at the moment that are pursued by, relatively speaking, handfuls of people uh, from our country and from the states, more from the states—but uh, acquire this incredible, uh, this 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 dead weight of, of fetishization and kind of interest, and and, and the genre itself, horror—the genre of horror expands to fit the void of of wildness if you like uh that is as do all of these other things i mean the the preoccupation with narcotics with extreme sex You know, even people who don't use narcotics and do not indulge in extreme sexual practices have an absolute desire to read about them and to, you know, there's a kind of pornography of drug use just as much as there is a pornography
2: of sex. In Elizabeth Bishop's great poem, The Moose, there's a moment when... The speaker overhears some older people talking in the back of the bus, and she translates their family gossip and their stories into a couple of lines where she says, life is like that, we know it, also death. And what contradicts that damning, leaden statement, life is like that, we know it, also death, is the apparition in the road of this great big moose that stops the bus, and everybody doesn't know what to say about it. Everybody is... For one thing, brought together as a community in, in speechlessness about that thing, and also brought together by their apprehension of otherness. and it, it seems like in you know if we describe sexual desire in terms of you know a 12 step model if we describe it in terms of Lacan if we describe it really in any way that nails it down too much what we do is uh, leave no room for otherness we we leave no room we say you know sex is like that we know it and desire flees just as you know as we say you know the imagination is like that we know what the imagination goes out the window and it refuses so uh, horror leaves a space for the other yes and for a kind of um, it's the monster that you can't see the thing creeping up the thing that you don't know yet that scares you the most I mean once you see the tentacles and the hundred mouths you know okay Um, but that space for the unpredictable the wild the not yet circumscribable seems crucial
0: I, I don't want to be too culturally generalised Are you going to ask the audience this? if they, I they am, want to I ask any questions because I'm conscious of the time. I just to one final thing <laughs> <laughs> and it's this, that I find <laughs> it very interesting that in an essay that you managed to write, of course you're a very, very serious writer so I'm not really surprised, but that you still managed to write an essay which is about Bram Stoker, Dracula, gay sex without <laughs> even a tone of campness creeping in. You know, it's Absolutely, deadly serious, and I, I think that's very interesting. I'm absolutely serious about this. Yeah, yes. yeah. yeah absolutely.
2: All right. <laughs> well, thank but you little, very much. A Can I take some in the questions from the
0: audience now? Yes. I've been talking partially about um, medical experience, and I've had bad blood problems too. The thing that occurred to me, what do you think of the bit in Bram Stoker's Dracula, where they have blood transfusion? Because if you read it, it seems to be one of the only bits of the book that isn't actually erotic at all, even though you've got panting sort of a woman driving on a bed. And it seemed to me, I think as far as I know, that's the first time there's ever been a blood transfusion in a book, it's very nude. Yet it's a very different scene from everything else. And I wonder, it almost seems to me as Bram Stoker shares your queasiness with
1: needles mm. almost. It seems not like it's a different scene from other scenes mm, in the book. Well, yeah, I, I think actually it's to do with the fact, I mean, the book is doing many things. It's not just sublimating stoker's own homosexuality i think one of the things it's doing is uh, and one of the uses to which he puts this vastly extended metaphor of vampirism is to discuss new technologies i mean and, and i agree with you i think that scene is very notable for being a kind of you know kind of the sort of thing that um What's the guy who wrote Jurassic Park, or you know, Michael Crichton of his day? You know, he's trying to kind of put. I mean, you know, after all, Dracula has a phone number,
2: <laughs> uh, and Stoker's really. You know, he's really
1: interested in, know, he's really that in that shit. Yeah. This is yeah. this is yeah. cutting cutting edge, if you'll forgive the pun. <laughs> is, um, it, is it also the yeah. first
2: novel that t- seriously incorporates typing?
1: Yeah, he's got a lot of typing in there. You know, but. <laughs> we like typing the phone is great though I mean his phone number is like per fleet one two three
0: (laughs) any other questions
2: there's a similar moment in in the great um, the the Murnau film in Nosferatu where you see um, under a microscope little parasitic cells Mm. creatures doing their thing and the implication is that vampirism is part of nature, that it's a biological fact, you know? And Eros goes right out the window as soon as it's viewed in that light.
0: We'll take one more question and then we'll have to wrap up. If there is one more question.
1: Oh, come up. on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Was, I'm just
0: curious about Willie Dawson of the great pathetic. In what sense um, of the word pathetic and why?
1: So I'd missed that entirely. That, it's, it's a
0: trivial question, but you described uh, Willie Donaldson as the greatly pathetic ruin. And I wondered if you were using pathetic in you know the tragic, dramatic sense or the more usual. Willie Donaldson. Sense.
1: Yeah. Are you familiar with Willie Donaldson?
0: Well that was that book, wasn't it, was made by Terence Blackwell? No,
1: not really. Have I you read the book by Terence Blackhood? I never got bored of the second chapter. Well, I rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it is pretty pathetic to have lived a life that is considered worthy of a full-length biography that is then abandoned after two chapters by a young man with his life ahead of him. It's not, he's not in the condition of those of us in middle age who seriously worry that reading another irrelevant book will use up some of the few precious fucking minutes that are left to us. A young man embarks on reading this book and abandons it after two chapters, comes along to a public literary event uh, (laughs) at which he chooses to ask an author who has referred to the subject of this biography as greatly pathetic why he did so. I often wonder whether they're educating you young people nowadays. On, on that
0: note, I think uh, we'll wrap up. Thank you very much. We'll That's sell the real horror. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. Join us in a fortnight's time when Grant a Deputy Editor Ella Ulfrey will be in conversation with Binyavanga Wainaina about his new novel and memoir, One day I will write about this place. Until then, I'm Ted Hodgkinson, and thank you very much for listening.